Well, before I begin the message, um, I was in the back trying to uh, look up and see what, what I could find out about what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, Hamas has a, a history. First of all, the name of that group, Hamas, is taken from Genesis during the time of Noah when Hamas filled the, the earth. The word Hamas means violence, and they chose that name for their group. And uh, every single time there has been peace talks, doesn't matter when or who is initiating it. This time it was Saudi Arabia and Israel were trying to come to some kind of an accord to try and normalize relationships, open up trade, things like this. Detente. And that, that's the reason Hamas attacked at this point. They wanted to derail those talks, and they have apparently been successful. Um, there are at least 35 hostages, uh, 700 have been killed, Israeli civilians and soldiers, and uh, hundreds more wounded. I think the number was 900 have been wounded. Most people haven't seen real evil. We hear about it, but we haven't seen it in action. And so their opinions vary on how to deal with it. But those people who have been taken hostage, they're being tortured. Their families are hoping for their return, as do all sane people. But the truth be known, the likelihood is they will not. And even if they are, it'll be years, not months, not weeks, years. The soldiers who were taken hostage in Gaza, in Lebanon in 2006, it was years before they got back to their families. And they were not the same. They spent years being tortured. It was physical damage, there was mental damage. They weren't the same people. A lot of people try to equate in any kind of violent situation. They make an equation, well, you know, you're, if you return violence to violence, you're just as bad as the person who initiated the violence. That is a lie from the deepest pit of hell imaginable. And it's also, in a word, stupid. It is true that the sheepdog is trained in violence just like the wolf, but they are not the same. There's no quality here. There's no equation at all. 
The one who wishes to murder and steal and rape and destroy and pillage is not the same as the one who protects against those very same things, even though it appears the same. It's both violence. Sheepdog and the wolf have the same kind of personality, same kind of tactics, but they're not the same. And for some reason, we keep getting bombarded with this idea that the one who attacks and the one who defends, they're the same. We need to get rid of all of them. This is, this is craziness. It's part of the insanity and the delusion that, that is the nature of the age we live in. Keep those hostages in prayer. Many of them are civilians. It's not just soldiers. Israel is responding, is trying to limit collateral damage. Hamas fired over 5,000 missiles into Israel, overwhelming the missile defense system known as Iron Dome. And there are well in excess of 1,000 casualties so far. And this has just started. That was a major move by Hamas and Netanyahu. He's responding in a very strong way. Well, yes, and sadly, he has to. You can't allow your country to be invaded and, and, and bombed like that. It, but understand, this peace accord that was being viewed by Saudi Arabia and, or discussed by Saudi Arabia and Israel is all but over at this point. Part of the accord was showing some, giving some concessions to the Palestinians in Gaza. Please keep those hostages in prayers, because the people who have them are not nice. They're doing unspeakable things to them. And it's not clear yet whether or not this was just a tactical move by Gaza or a strategic move in a coordinated overall attack. Many in Israel are watching Hamas, uh, Hamas, what they're doing, but also Hezbollah in Lebanon. It would be strategically useful to open up a second front right now. And the money that America is giving to Iran, who outfits Hezbollah in Lebanon, one of the big objections was, what do you think that money is going to go for? Food? Medical supplies? It's going to go for Katusha rockets. Israel is a very precarious state right now. Uh, the reports are very dim. Uh, lots, well, let's not wait till later. Let's pray right now. Father, in Yeshua's name, I lift up to the leadership of Israel right now and ask for your wisdom to be with them. Give them eyes to see beyond what is visible, to see the intent 
to anticipate. You, you moved David and his armies around strategically. You gave them wisdom as to where the attacks were going to happen, and you gave them the tactics to overcome the Philistines. We have modern-day Philistines. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the strength to repel these brutal attacks. In Yeshua's precious name, amen. It's uh, no coincidence that these attacks come during Oshana Rabbah, of course, the season of our rejoicing. Same thing was done in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Israel tries to avoid attacks on Ramadan and, and other holy days in Islam. There is no equation here. There are good guys and bad guys. Take a a note from the prayers of David HaMelech. Pray against the bad guys. Yeah. Don't just pray for the good guys. Pray against the bad guys. Today I want to take a look at Sukkot, and more specifically, Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day. I want to look at it from a more mystical viewpoint than I did last week. And I want to begin by uh, correcting a misconception that remains even to this day. You hear a lot of talk about the seven Levitical holy days. Well, there, there are nine, not seven. For some reason, we discarded two. Leviticus 23 enumerates nine mo'adim, nine appointed times that Israel shall gather and worship their God. Two of those holy days are not of this world. Seven are. The first Shabbat, the, the first mo'ed that is mentioned, Leviticus 23, is in the very first opening lines of these, of these words. And it's the weekly Shabbat. And as I brought out on many occasions, the weekly Shabbat was never closed by God. You never read it was evening and morning, the seventh day. The Lord wanted that condition of rest and peace to exist for eternity. It was the, the way he wanted the creation to, to exist in peace, in rest. All needs satisfied. Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, which comes the, the very next day after Sukkot, is a return to that condition of rest and peace. If you look at the Shabbat as a line, an eternal line, when man ate, Man closed the seventh day, not God. He left that condition of there was no death. He was to live forever. He had access to the tree of life. And he left that line 
and entered into a cycle. It, it leaves the Shabbat and returns to the Shabbat. And the seven Levitical holy days that are normally spoken about, Pesach, Matzah, Persfruits, Shavuot, Yom Truah, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkot, are within that cycle that brings us back to the eternal condition of the Sabbath, rest and peace. And these various holy days are signposts on that cycle of bringing us back into the condition that God first brought us forth in. <clears throat> Sukkot represents, Sukkot is different from the other holy days. Prophetically, in Zechariah 14, we're told that when the Lord returns, he will set up his rule in Jerusalem, and all the nations of the earth, including Israel, will bring their, the glory of their kings into Jerusalem and make, make an offering to God. All the, all the nations of the world will bring glory into Jerusalem to worship the king, and he'll they'll do it on Sukkot, on this feast. Sukkot represents a trans, transitional period of time between the fall of man and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth in Jerusalem. It's not heaven on earth, but it's also not the physical creation. In Yiddish we say, it's nishtahir, nishtahir. Neither here nor there. It, it's suspended somewhere in between. The things that go on in the millennial kingdom are different than life that exists today. In that kingdom of the Lord, a hundred-year-old man will be called, referred to as a babe. Nobody calls a hundred-year-old man in this world a babe. It, it, trust me. Although you do resemble a baby. You're bald and you have no teeth. So there, there is some kind of connection there, but it's, I don't think that's what they're getting at here. The earth has been restored. The temple is huge. It rises up. And it's many, many, many miles that it encompasses. And the glory of that kingdom pales against the one who sits on the throne in that kingdom. Yeshua rules from there, from a throne. On the eighth day, Immediately following Sukkot, something very profound happens. In Suk at Sukkot, the, the Sukkah of David, the, the tabernacle of David is restored and he rules. But that's still in time. It lasts for a thousand years. It's not eternity quite yet. It's preparing for eternity. Right after Sukkot is done, 
the thousand-year reign of the Lord is done, we then enter into the time that is described in Leviticus as Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day. It's the time when the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and a new heaven and a new earth descend from the throne of God, and it's different. There's no longer a physical creation. It is now the kingdom of heaven, and it does not correlate to the world we live in right now. The three names for Sukkot, this Moed, reflect the primary focus of this transition. Uh, the first is, of course, tabernacles, Sukkah. When God and man dwell together in the same proximity, prophetically it speaks, Zechariah 14 speaks at this time. Another name for this holy day in Leviticus is Chag HaAtzif, the feast, uh, the, the celebration of the ingathering of the final harvest of the year. And of course, our rabbis named, gave it another name. For the Lord's command on this day is, you shall rejoice. It's a command. And so they called it Zaman Simchatenu, the season of our rejoicing. The word sukkah, or sukkot, refers to three different structures. Two are earthbound. One is a heavenly structure, not of this earth. Israel dwelt in tents on our journey from Egypt to Sinai and from Sinai to the border of Israel. When we refused to go into the land because we feared the people who were in the land, we spent the next 40 years in these temporary structures, these tents. The Lord commanded Israel to build him a sukkah. We called it Ed, the tent of the meeting. The tent of the meeting is also called the Mishkan. The two words, Ed and Mishkan, are synonymous, and they are used interchangeably. One of the first places Mishkan is mentioned is Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. The Ohama Ed was the Mishkan. The word Mishkan comes from a root which, which is Shachan, which means a dwelling place. Shachan is also the root of the word Shechina or Shechania, and it means God's dwelling place. Shechina means the dwelling presence of God. The Mishkan was the place, the physical place where God's dwelling presence would be. Interestingly enough, the one who is light and in whom there is no darkness resides in an arafel. The word arafel means thick fog. And the purpose of this thick fog was to protect the physical creation and primarily people from the fullness of God's presence. 
The physical creation cannot stand it in the full presence of God. It comes undone. It disintegrates. I'm going to take a moment to pray because I didn't get to sleep last night. We had a couple of emergencies. Father, in Yeshua's name, I ask that you clear my head and give me some strength today. And I might be able to rejoice in the midst of the horrors of this day. That your strength would overcome my weakness. In Yeshua's name, amen. David spoke of the Arafel in which God dwells. Psalm 97, verse 2. Anan ve'arafel, clouds and this dense fog surround him. It, it becomes his shelter, his dwelling place. This is the same Arafel that filled Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And filled it to the point where the glory of God was so great they couldn't even stand to, to minister. The priests fell over. Now this barrier is necessary, again, to preserve the physical crea creation from the full exposure to God's presence. We see this happen with Aaron's sons. The scriptures said, say they made a strange smoke, something different from the smoke that was to protect them when God appeared in the Holy of Holies. And they made a strange smoke. They didn't use the same ingredients. Whatever it happened, whatever it was, it was different from what God commanded. So when God showed up, there was no protection. And they were consumed by the fire of his presence. It just burnt up. It's not so much God was punishing them. You know, an example I like to use, somebody gives me an umbrella, and I, I go out and enter into a rainstorm. If... I don't open the umbrella. I'm going to get wet. The rain isn't targeting me. The rain's just there. And the quality of the rain is moisture. It's wet. And if I don't have something to protect me, I'm going to get wet. It's just a consequence of my disobedience. The rain didn't target me. I don't believe God targeted the sons of Aharon. They just didn't do what he said. And so they weren't protected. And so when God showed up, poof, they became two smoking embers. <clears throat> At Sinai, the entire mountain was surrounded by the Anan, the, the, the clouds, and this, um, this Arafel, this, this dense fog, which dissipated the light, diffused it so it wasn't so concentrated. And for six days, the glory of God rested on Sinai. And on the seventh day, God called Moshe to come up. And if you'll remember from Exodus 24, Moshe brought with him 70 elders and Joshua. And they ascended up into the mountain. And they had a meal in the presence of God. The scriptures say they saw God. And they ate a meal there. It was the first marriage supper of the Lord that took place on Sinai. 
And here's how the scriptures describe that cloud that surrounded Sinai. Exodus chapter 24, verses 18, uh, 12 to 18. And to the eye of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. That's what the 70 saw when Moshe was called to come, go into the, into the cloud, into the consuming fire. But he was not consumed, just like the bush he saw, surrounded by flames, on fire. But that bush was not consumed. Moshe entered into this consuming fire, and he was protected in the midst of it. That same cloud of glory hovered over the tent of the meeting and would fill the tent at various mo'adim, various appointed times when God said he would show up. And when it was time to move, we would pack up God's sukkah, his earthly sukkah, this tent of the meeting, and we would follow this, this arafel that was filled with the light and glory of God. Wherever it would take us, we would follow it. My people see that Arafel as the heavenly sukkah of God. David tells us that God dwells in the midst of this. It's a temporary cloud. It's not a, an eternal cloud. The cloud will eventually disappear, as we shall see, but this was the house that God inhabited, this fog, this, this cloud. Now, to view this time from the perspective of those who are earthbound, Sukkot remembers our 40-year punishment for not having the faith to enter into the land that the Lord showed us. But the Lord tells us, rejoice. You're not allowed to be unhappy during this time. Rejoice. The way my father explained his punishments to me, It wasn't only my father, your father too. How we see this Moed is determined by where we, where we sit. Many years ago, the Lord showed me that the wolf would be hard pressed to recognize his journey if that journey was viewed from the eye of the hawk hovering above. It would appear as a different journey entirely. In Gan Eden, God provided for every physical need of man. And our time of punishment in the wilderness resembles the time that Adam spent in the garden more than any other mentioned in scripture. Manna rained down from heaven. We didn't have to plant anything. We didn't really have to harvest. We just had to pick it up off the, off the ground. Water sprang forth in the midst of a desert from a rock that followed us, according to Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 10, an ancient medrash of the Jewish people. It's still taught today. Our clothing never wore out. Our sandals didn't wear out. The tents that we lived in never wore out. 
It was a miraculous life that revealed the presence of God every single day. We had to depend on him for every day. First, we didn't know this. So when the manna fell, we gathered. God said, gather enough for one day. We gathered for more because you never know. What happened to it? It spoiled. So we, we schlep around this manna the whole day, and then it, it's, it goes bad anyway. Why? God wanted us to understand, every day I will give you what you need. It's not about your effort in saving. and I will provide for your needs. It's the same thing that the Lord tried to teach us on a mound that overlooks the Connecticut, the Sea of Galilee. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of this stuff that you need to exist, I will give to you. Seek me first. Seek my righteousness first. I'll give you the rest of the stuff. That's what he was trying to teach us in the wilderness too. Sure, identifies himself as the rock from which the living waters sprang, as well as the manna, the bread of life. Just like Adam, for 40 years, we could hear the voice of God walking on the wind of the day. It was truly a miraculous life. It also reveals that even in punishment, Adonai Shema, God is there. He remained with us for every step of that journey. Sukkot is a pinpoint of light in darkness. And it speaks to us of the hope of Yeshua's return. Again, Zechariah 14, the glorious time when all who proclaim the name of Yeshua, Jew or Gentile, will come up to Jerusalem and bring their glory before the Lord at the Sukkot. A time when the tyranny of time itself shall have passed and the urgency of the immediate forgotten. We won't even remember those things. When the fragility of, of this earthbound vessel, this body, has passed and the light and the power of man is once again revived. And all there will be left to do is to rejoice and bask in the light of the presence of the one who brought that revival. When the season of our rejoicing shall become a permanent state of being. Now, curiously, Sukkot is the first holy day celebrated after the Yuval, the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25 tells us that the, the year of Jubilee would begin with Tekiah Gadola, the, the long blast on the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur. That's when the Yuval began. We went from the affliction of Yom Kippur to the final harvest which commences on Sukkot, from affliction or fasting to feasting. Zechariah 13 and 14 reflect this or identify this transition. Zechariah 13 tells us that 
Israel, it speaks of the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call the Great Tribulation, a time of profound affliction. When a fire shall come forth from heaven, and God tells us it will consume two-thirds of Israel, and one-third will be brought through that heavenly fire and purified like fine gold. Anything that is not of the Lord will be burnt up. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3. The affliction of Yom Kippur, described in Zechariah 13, will eventually give way to the rejoicing of Sukkot and the rule of the Lord, of the Lord himself in Zechariah 14. That's why we believe that whenever Messiah would come, Israel would begin to celebrate that final Sukkot. A time of transition from this physical creation to an existence in eternity which is identified by Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, the day following Sukkot. The moment when the image of God, that is my neshama, that breath of light and life, will envelop this physical container. When I am revealed as a son of God, a creature of light, it's exactly what John is speaking to in 1 John chapter 3, beloved, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that we, when Messiah appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John wrote that before he was taken up, the kach, taken up into, into the third heaven. Before he saw Yeshua, as he exists in eternity, now we know what we'll be like. Because we have seen the Lord, or at least we have a description from one who has seen the light. Revelation 1.16, and his face shines like the sun in its brightness. He is light. That is his condition in eternity. That was pretty much a review. Let me, allow me one further indulgence that will strengthen our faith today. Because the spirit of Messiah is the spirit of prophecy. And the prophecies about his first coming, he has fulfilled. The fall, the, the spring holy days have been fulfilled by Yeshua at his first coming. There's no reason for me to believe that he will not fulfill the promises that he has made for his second coming. You know, sometimes I doubt if I'm a believer. I know. Everybody else is so certain of it. I'm not so certain of it. I work out my, my own salvation with fear and trembling. But there's certain things I won't do, and there's certain things I do. Not because they're advantageous to me here, 
They're not. They don't bring me pleasure here. Sometimes they bring me heartache. Sometimes they bring me trouble here, not peace. But I do them anyway because the Lord said to. That is my faith in action. I believe that God exists. I believe that it is righteous what he told me to do and what he told me to refrain from. And so I do those things. And when I remember that, maybe I am a believer. You know, it's a comforting thought that the word of the Lord that I can't see still drives my behavior. The prophetic aspect of Sukkot or Ha'asif is being fulfilled in our day. And we need to take note of this because sometimes we get so distracted in this world that we don't see the hand of God moving. Same thing happened in the first century. The leaders of God's people, they missed the Lord walking in their midst, the glory of the living God. They missed it. They got distracted by power, by wealth, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Distractions of distractions. I want to try to exegete some Hebrew here for you. Now we'll begin with Micah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. The Lord is speaking and he, he, he refers to Asof e Asof. And he says, I will certainly gather, and he's gathering Israel. He, pro he prophesies of a time when he will gather Israel back to the land. In May of 1948, the dry bones began to shake. And the hope of Israel became a reality. And it happened in an instant. The twinkling of an eye, in Hebrew it's pa'am. An instant, stroke of a pen, and Israel, which had not existed for 2,000 years, was now a state with defined borders. It was a land given back to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Ezekiel's vision, we were watching it take place. The second part of that dry bones prophecy is being fulfilled in our day. When he tells the prophet, breathe, blow over these dry bones. And the Holy Spirit comes and they rise up. They take on flesh. And then there's a spirit that is blown into them by the prophet. A holy wind is blowing across an ancient people. And God is giving us eyes to see. Every single day, there are Jews coming. Who, coming back to the Lord. Professing that Yeshua is the Messiah. Every single day, we are watching these, these things happen. On the day that Israel was established, the Orthodox, the, Hasid, the Hasidim, the, uh, the Orthodox of my people declared this, finally, we have been delivered 
from Jesus of the nations. Sounds kind of hard. They followed that with no more inquisitions, no more pogroms, no more crusades. Millions of my people died at the hands of people giving Yeshua, the Jew, glory. And the Orthodox amongst my people, finally, no more of this. We breathe a sigh of relief. And although that's a sad testimony of the church, we fled right into the arms of Yeshua. For Yeshua is as much a part of Israel, the fabric of Israel, as the sands on which it rests. It's inextricable. You can't separate Yeshua from the land of Israel. The very stones of Jerusalem declare him with every excavation. Last time I went to Israel during a conflict was 2006. There was a conflict in Lebanon. And when I was done with what I was doing up there, it was about uh, it was five or six days before I was supposed to leave, and I, I came back down to Jerusalem to spend some, some time with my friend. We've been friends since 1986 when I first met him, on my first trip to Israel. A brilliant man, wonderful artist, just extraordinary creature. And we decided to take a stroll around the old city. And I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again if the Lord allows me to live. Because it's one of the most profound moments of my life. As we were walking at the corner with a hotel, the, the, the uh, wailing wall ends, was some graffiti from 2,000 years ago. They had just recently dug it out. And it revealed these words. And it had only been about a year before me and Elchanan was standing at this wall. And the graffiti was from Isaiah 66, 14. When you see this, let your heart be glad. It was amazing. Tears, tears of joy began to flow. Two old Jews, standing in the shadow of the words of the prophet, written on a wall. We rejoiced. The rest of the trip I hardly remember. I don't remember what we looked at. It doesn't matter. I saw those words. And that's all that was my entire existence at that point. The words of the living God were calling the two old Jews 2,000 years later. The very stones of Jer Jerusalem declare him with every single excavation. You can't build a house hardly in Jerusalem. You know, here you dig a hole, you stick a foundation, and then you build a house. 
You can't stick a shovel into the ground without going back hundreds of years with every shovelful. And the Ministry of Antiquity has to come and, and make sure those are not significant remains. In the, minis in the, in the midst of the gaiety of Ben Yehuda Street, Ben Yehuda Street is tantamount to what Boulder did with the Pearl Street Mall, only it's much larger. And it's not just a state, straight street. There, there are side streets that go off it, and there's shops, you know, mostly for tourists, and there's eateries, outdoor cafes, and it's, it's a place of, it's a party. The gaiety is extraordinary. There's musicians, almost like it's described in the Talmud, without numbers, playing all different kinds of instruments, and beats of kungas, and magicians, pulling rabbits out of various places. People juggling at night with, with torches, fiery torches. And when you come to the end of Ben Yehuda, there's an arch. And in this arch is chiseled in the words, Eli, Eli, Amasabachtani. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Yeshua's words, spoken 2,000 years ago, emblazed on this arch, and they call to you. As a believer, those words call to me. Truly, the rocks cry out. I'll close it out with this. In Hebrew, the, the letter Ein is the number 70. There's no number, there is now, but in ancient Israel, there was only letters. And those letters refer to different numbers. The letter Ein is 70. The word Ein is the Hebrew word for I. It is also the word for Ein Gedi, the spring of Gedi, the one that David found refuge in. Another anecdote. Ein Gedi was, is It's simply a magical place. And I, I thank God that I was able to get there before Israel put up the buildings and the toll booth so that you have to pay to get in, before they put up the railings, when it was just pristine. And we're headed down to Ilat in the Red Sea and there's a little sign, not a very big sign. Angeti with an arrow. There's no parking there. And we pulled off the road and just parked on the side of the road. And we started walking up this path and it was in excess of 100 degrees, probably about 110, 115. It's, it's August. It's the lowest point on the planet. It's hot. And it's a little footpath, not really a path at all. It's just like an animal trail. And you're walking through this thick bamboo forest. And it follows this little stream that's one to, to two to three foot wide, 
depending on where you're, you're standing at the moment. And you walk up, I don't know, maybe it's a half a mile, I don't know. And the bamboo forest opens up to this box canyon. And the walls are you know, 70 feet high. And the spring of Getty, the waters are falling over the edge of this sheer cliff. And they're falling a good way, and so they break up, and so the, this, the, these waters become like rain coming down on you, and they fall into this pool. And when I was there, there was no guardrails. There was no prohibition. You just went up. You could, the water was pure. You could just drink it. The temperature there was about 72, 73 degrees compared with an excess of 100 down below. It was heaven on earth. That place was filled with such a sense of peace, such a bliss. We immersed ourselves in waters to cool off, and then we laid down, my first wife and I, and our feet were dangling on these shores of eternity, because that's what it felt like. We fell asleep for hours, a restful sleep like, like a baby sleeping, not a care in the world, simply a magical place. We woke up, it was already evening. Here is Mashiach revealed. The name of Yeshua ends in the letter Ein. The Orthodox have removed the letter Ein from Yeshua's name, and they call him Yeshu. That's my subtle way of saying, please shut off your phones. Yeshu is an, an acronym, Imashmo. May his name be forgotten. Don't judge my people so, so harshly. Millions of my people were killed in the name of Yeshua. That's a corporate memory. And please shut off your phones. I'll give you money. difficult to remove that memory. Every Jew who comes to the Lord, whether they're religious or not, has to get past that memory. When they remove the iron, there's no eye to see. There's no spring from which flows the living water. And the arrogance of ignorance is first experienced in youth. The Lord had to teach me this when he first called me into ministry. My attitude to the, towards those I was witnessing to was quite arrogant. I would hand them Isaiah 53, and almost to a man. I, I can't remember a single individual when they read Isaiah 53. And I asked, who does it speak of? Everyone, Jesus. 
Well, those words were written long before Yeshua walked the earth. And it was revealed that it was written by Isaiah. Then, of course, there's some resistance and whatever. Now, I didn't say anything like this, but in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, are you stupid? Are you dense? How can you, how can you read these words and not see Yeshua in this and come to believe? And when I came down here from Idaho, the Lord had to, to teach me. I was living alone. My wife was up in Idaho, and I was living in a little closet. I met one of my friends from Idaho. He was living down here, and he allowed me to stay, which was a move upward from the back of my truck. And I was studying the scriptures and I had called my father, and he sent me my talit, and he sent me my yarmulke, and he sent me my tzitzit from when I was a much younger man. And then one day, I'm reading and studying, and I lost Yeshua. You know, you lose your keys. I lost the Lord. Couldn't find him anywhere. I ran to Isaiah 53, wasn't there. I spent two weeks in chaos, in outer darkness, where there was, was certainly weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I believed the lie for the last decade. And then as suddenly as it began, it ended. And the Lord picked that veil up. And then I saw the Lord everywhere. From better sheet in the beginning to the end. He was everywhere. And the Lord showed me this is not a matter of, this has nothing to do with any cerebral capacity. This is not a matter of your intellect. It's not a matter of being stupid or intelligent. There's a veil. And inside that veil it's dark. And there's no light. And your job Poke holes in the veil. Let my light in. In my light they'll see light. Not in your arguments, not in your words. In my light they'll see light. So poke a few holes. Lose the arrogance. It's the single most important lesson I learned that carried me on the mission field when I went out with Eliezer. Joel chapter 2, verse 23, speaks of end times. He says, For I have given you the early rain for your vindication. Now that translation is not a great translation. In fact, it's not a translation at all. It's more of a pun on the word moreh. The word moreh means teacher. It means to flow. And it means rain. Hebrew is a very figurative language. From the teacher flows living waters, rains from heaven, teachings. The words in Hebrew actually say this. I have given you the teacher of righteousness. Not the early rain and the late rain. 
The word tzedakah is righteousness. Moreh is teacher. I have given you the teacher of righteousness. And the rain, his teachings, will flow down on you, the early rain and the late rain. Amen. 2,000 years ago, the early rains came. The time, our, the time the Lord, our righteousness, was not clothed in an arafel, a deep fog and, and darkness, and a cloud of glory that he was at Sinai, but he took the form of a man, and he walked amongst us, and we beheld the glory of the Father in the Son, and explained it. He explained us to us, the Father. First chapter of the Gospel of Yochanan. Yeshua, Hamoreh HaTzedakah, the teacher of righteousness, taught us, and his knowledge and his understanding and his wisdom rained down on us and it moistened the soul to prepare our hearts for the seeds, which is the word of God. Yeshua would use a, a parable to teach us this precise understanding. And as my people are returning the Ein to the name of Yeshua, they are beginning to have eyes to see. And it's re releasing this flow of living water. And that teaching is falling upon all the peoples of the earth. Remember the letter Ein means 70, and last week we discussed this in much greater depth. There were 70 nations that God gave borders to according to the 70 souls that went with Yaakov down to Egypt. Daily that, that veil is being lifted, and salvation, Yeshua, is coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And one day soon, we will hear the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's when you will see Moreh the teacher of righteousness, riding on a white horse in front of a, an army. The Lord of armies will be followed by his army. And he will take this, this world. And those who do not believe in him will be destroyed. And those who do will be exalted. On that day, the whole earth will be immersed in an Ananai Kavod, the cloud of glory. And the luminescent presence of the one who dwells within that cloud will be revealed, and we shall see him as he is. And every care that you have here, every burden, in that moment will dissipate, disappear. And for a thousand years, we shall celebrate Sukkot as the Lord tabernacles with his people. But I'll tell you, even that's not the end of the story, is it? Because a thousand years is still in time. 
and the thousand years comes to an end. And Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day begins. And at that moment, even the Arafel, the Ananakavod, the Anan, the cloud that surrounds him, disappear because it will no longer be necessary. The sons of God are revealed and the, as the children of light, and they are not consumed by the light of God's presence. They are absorbed by that light. And we share a communion with God that is simply beyond anything we're capable of comprehending. We share communion as a, as a, a, uh, a memorial for what our Lord did. But there's a time coming we're still individually housed in these islands of flesh. And there's a separation between us. But flesh and blood doesn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And when these islands of flesh are removed, the light of my neshama will join with the light of yours. And it will join with the light of God. It's sublime. When one thinks of this, it's, it's overwhelming. Then even the memory of this place will be forgotten. I was made in the image of God. I will return to that image. Light and wind. Let the hope of this promise of the coming communion sustain you during these times of darkness. We are in darkness every day. My words are, well, at least it can't get any worse. Now that's stupid. Because every day it gets worse. It's in that desperation that the spirit and the bride say, Mashiach Bo, Messiah come. The spirit and the bride both say, come. This world is losing its glory and the glory of the Lord is rising. <clears throat> Father in Yeshua's name, <coughs> we give praise, honor and glory to you and I thank you for the all the promises you have bestowed upon your people. Promises of restoration. Promises of seeing you again. Promises of being invited to the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. When we feast at the foot of your throne and behold you in all of your glory, not with fear, but with rejoicing. Strengthen your people, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen.